Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape as we mark the one-year anniversary of quarantine. From my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a dazzling view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the city of angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a scientist, a professor, the author of the new book, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, and it seems worth noting, the first open heroin user to visit this show. Hello and welcome, Dr. Carl L. Hart. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Mike. Just one correction. I, I don't know if I, I really uh, qualify as a habitual heroin user. I think that's like, let's, let's not do the bullshit New York Post thing here. That's I not. have zero intention of doing the bullshit New York Post. Thing. As a matter of fact, before I even talk to you about the book, I want to talk to you about the reactions you're getting to the book. And I promise you, I am not interested at all in the back and forth stuff. It's just that I started following you on Twitter when this book came on my radar two weeks ago. And since then, I have been genuinely surprised to see how often I feel like I see that you are on the defensive in regard to this book. And I, I haven't listened to the interview that you did on The Breakfast Club, but I am genuinely curious. I lack the imagination and creativity to imagine what is it that people find so controversial about starting a conversation about rethinking the way legally and as a society we look at drugs? What is the nature of the criticism that you hear most often? Uh, you, you know, the criticism comes primarily from people who haven't read the book. Um, mm -hmm. And so they are responding to something that somebody said, some misrepresentation of, of me, of what I do. Um, and so uh, I don't know, you know, people make up things in their mind. Uh, for example, they say things like, you're encouraging kids to use heroin. Uh, that's one of the things. Um, how can you be a responsible person if you use this devil drug? I mean, all the things that I'm trying, the myths that I'm trying to um, uh, deal with in the book and trying to address, um, um, they're, they're raising these issues in their uh, comments. It's surprising to me because very often nowadays, as a society tries in fits and starts to evolve, we're being asked to understand other people's issues and other people's struggles that maybe we can't personally relate to. But I've done drugs. I continue to do drugs. Almost everybody that I know either currently does drugs to some extent or another in some you know uh, capacity or another or has. We all know what we're talking about, and we all know that the vast majority of people who do experiment with drugs either in their youth or throughout their life have very little problem. I don't know anything about, I couldn't even name more than one host of The Breakfast Club to, to pick that particular example. Have those people not tried drugs? Do they have no personal uh, um, experience from which to draw on? Do they, or do they have to parrot the things that Nancy Reagan told them in 1983? Well, so uh, some of those people, for example, they mm -hmm. may have a relative who um, were identified as someone who's struggling with drugs, and that's why that relative was having all of those problems. And then and that relative may have been a horrible person because of their drug use is what the story is. 
And so uh, people uh, worry that, uh, oh, my God, you're tr trying to create a society of people like my relative who had problems. And so um, in the book, I try to help people to understand that it's we have lied to people about the role of drugs um, in people's problems, what role the, the drugs really play. But if you don't read it and you don't see how you've been manipulated, then you believe those stories. And I think a lot of the people, or well, there were three hosts and at least two of them uh, kind of digested these stories without any sort of critical analysis. Well, I spent quite a bit of time with the book and I, and I enjoyed spending time with the book. I did mention your disclosures, which are somewhat extensive about your own personal drug history and habits. Um, and those have been headline grabbing. People who are talking about the book don't ever fail to mention that. And obviously I included it in the intro of the show. You could have written this book without including your own personal experiences as a person, as a professional, as a parent, there would have been certain advantages to leaving yourself out of it. Why did you ever consider writing the book without including that stuff? Why did you decide that you wanted or needed it to be there? Well, at the end of the book, as you know, um, there, there is an ask of the readers, uh, particularly the middle class privileged folks. Uh, I, I've asked them to come out of the closet I asked them to come out of the closet in solidarity with those people who are being persecuted simply because they are identified as a drug user. I also asked them to come out of the closet so we can change this caricatured look or view of a drug user as some irresponsible person. And that's just simply not the typical, typical drug user. So if you're going to have an ask of people, uh, it seems like it's incumbent upon you to at least be able to do the same thing. And so that's why that's one of the reasons I came out and and kind of said something about my drug use. But I really wanted people to understand that this is what usually happens when people do drugs. It's kind of, you know, it's a personal thing. It's a thing that happens with close friends and relatives or loved ones. Um, and it's not these things, this, uh, this drama that we usually see in the movies. And so I was trying to uh, dispel all of those myths. I was, try I was trying to present a more realistic view of what a drug user looked like. Someone who um, is boring, go to work, handles their responsibilities, um, loves their family, loves their community, um, trying hard to make a contribution. Um, and, and so I had to um, um, come out of the closet. And also just because um, I reread the Declaration of Independence and understood that the Declaration of Independence protects my rights. I didn't know this. I mean, I really didn't digest this until like really struggling with it and, and thinking about what we've been doing with drug policies. And so uh, it's an act of civil disobedience. Right. Now, I never thought I would learn anything from Jerry Garcia. I've never really responded to the music of The Grateful Dead, but he's the one in the book that I'm sure many people have made this observation, and this is what you're just touching on, but he's the one quoted in the book as pointing out, the, I mean, the foundational text of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, we spend so many people have so many t-shirts and bumper stickers and seem to live their lives driven so much by the the need to protect at all cost our liberty. And I couldn't help but thinking of what role do you feel like the 
the puritanical strain in our culture going back to the foundation of our nation plays in this because it seems to me, and you make a great example in the book, guns. Guns are legal <laughs> and to, to some extent and drugs to a great extent are not. And nobody argues that guns are not dangerous. We just, we tend to think if something has a benefit, well, okay, cars are dangerous, but I need it to get to work. Fast food can be dangerous, but I need food to eat. Guns can be dangerous, but I need them to protect my house. Drugs don't have that outside of pharmaceutical, um, you know, and, and therapeutic purposes. They don't have that value they can point to. They simply bring us pleasure. And there's something that seems very uniquely American to say, well, if all I get from it is pleasure, then that is not all that valuable. But what the hell are we doing here if we're not trying to pursue some pleasure occasionally? Wow, you just hit it on the head, man. Um, you know, I was trying to write a book uh, about pleasure, celebrating life and the joys of drug use. And I kept getting waylaid uh, because my editor, rightly so, would say, well, you have to respond to this criticism. You have to respond to that criticism. And, and so I was worried that the pleasure aspect that you just described got lost in the book because <clears throat> it is Pleasure is a good thing. And I have to say this in the book. And so think about that. You have to like remind people that pleasure is a good thing. You have to do that in part because, as you pointed out, the Puritans in our society have somehow uh, have they now have this undue influence on how we think about our lives. And we have to justify our want to have pleasure. We have to justify our uh, activities in which uh, the goal is to have pleasure. Questions like, well, did you earn the pleasure? What the fuck? What? what, what? Uh, you know, so pleasure, if people are happy, they're enjoying themselves, they're happy with themselves, they're happy, they're likely, they're more likely to treat you better. Uh, and so, that's one of the things I, I was really trying to bring through in the book. And I don't know if it, if it got lost in um, the, the, the defensive posture I had to take in a number of places, but it's really a story about a 54 year old professional uh, black man in, in American society, just trying to work it out, uh, trying to have a, a good time while, while I'm here. I understand I only have one life, trying to be a good father, trying to be a better husband, trying to uh, be a good community member. And, um, and the fact that I use drugs is uh, no more important and then the fact that I may uh, take the subway every now and then, or I may uh, eat some um, sweet treat, um, it's no more important than, than those items. But we act as if uh, if we if we know that you use drugs, that gives us some important information that's relevant for some reason. And um, and I'm, I tried to show that. Keep the focus on the relevant behavior. The relevant behaviors is that we want people to be good people. That's, that's number one. And then everything else can flow from there. Are they good people? Are they preventing other citizens from enjoying their rights? If they're uh, preventing other citizens from enjoying their rights, I don't care if they're using drugs or not. That's the problem. I agree with most of what you uh, most of the conclusions you come to in the book, I may quibble with a couple things here and there, but the biggest obstacle that you need to address 
um, in, in trying to make a case for relaxing drug laws and relaxing societal attitudes is the issue of addiction. And I, in, in from where we are right now, if you, you know, the hypothetical tomorrow, an 18 year old kid could go down to a candy store and buy a bag of heroin. It's hard for me to imagine that we don't end up with a slightly higher percentage of addictions, overdoses and deaths. What do you say to that? I tend to think of addiction as more of a psychological issue. In my experience, as I said, I've used drugs. I will continue to use drugs. I've known many drug users. The people I've known who've gotten into trouble with drugs, I feel, brought psychological baggage to their drug use. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people in the society who have psychological baggage and greater access to drugs would seem like it is going to lead to greater addiction issues in your experience, in your expertise, yes or no. Yeah, so this is another trick of uh, the folks in our society. When they make this argument, they're not really thinking about my kids, right? Like the police and what they do with the enforcement of drug laws, far worse than that shit that you just described, far worse. But in our society, it's uh, from this sort of white middle class perspective, how we do things. And so uh, even with that perspective, we do far more harm currently. Uh, we have 2.3 million people in prison. Uh, we have this paranoia surrounding drug use. If you're not the most privileged people in our society and what that paranoia does for your psychological functioning and health. I mean, for my psychological functioning and health. I mean, I'm a fairly healthy person. I have accomplished all kinds of things in this society, but in my life, I make sure I don't have friends who people who I don't know, or if they come, they've come in my life recently. That's because of this sort of hyper enforcement with drug laws. I don't want any new people in my life because I don't know what they're bringing in my life. That's not a way for humans to live. And the cost of that for my health, I, I don't know what it is, but it's incalculable. And but we don't include that. Instead, we have these examples of some kid who's 18 and they get addicted. That's that's life. I mean, somebody will probably lose their life on the highway today from cars. We lose 40,000 Americans every year on the highway from cars. Nobody's talking about banning cars, but what they're talking about doing is, OK, how can we make this activity more safe? How? speed limits, uh, seat belts, airbags, all of these sorts of things, requirements before you can get behind the wheel. Do the same thing with drugs. We can do exactly the same thing with drugs. And then when you look at a place like Portugal, who in 2000 decriminalized everything, took away stigma, uh, they weren't uh, really arresting people at rates like we're doing. But uh, and, and drugs are not legally regulated. They are just decriminalized. They saw a decrease in overdoses. Uh, for, uh, when, for example, when you think about the number of overdoses per 100,000 Americans, uh, it's about, uh, well, last I checked, it was about 315 or so. In Portugal, that number is six. And so you think about uh, Portugal, uh, it's a smaller country, it's a more homogenous country, country, so there are some differences, but come on, man. I mean, if you don't have the stigma, if you don't have the adulterants uh, in something like heroin, and when people start to get in trouble, you know how to identify it. But the fact remains, people will get in trouble. 
um, life is not without risk. The question is, whose risk are you most concerned about? Okay, so you raise, you raised three or four different issues there, and I actually want to address each and every one of them. Even if you come to the conclusion that drugs should be illegal, if you're of that mind for whatever reason, then you have to get into the practicality of, can you enforce that? There's lots of things that we would like to do that are just legally not tenable. You mentioned Portugal. Use them as an example. Use anything that you are aware of as an example. Is there any evidence that making drugs legal or illegal significantly affects availability or use. I have never known someone who really wanted to do drugs who did not because they were illegal and therefore couldn't find them. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, um, the, uh, there are people, for example, who will not engage in an activity be simply because it's illegal. And so there can be an argument that's uh, that the argument being that, well, um, it's illegal, and so you're going to um, prevent a number of people from even trying it. Because you can think about cannabis uh, legalization. There might be more people who try it simply because it's legal, and they don't have to deal with uh, the underground economy or any of that sort of stuff, the black market, or they don't have to deal with that. And so an argument certainly can be made that if you make when you make something illegal, you will decrease the likelihood of people experimenting or the number of people who experiment. But that's not the question. The question is, are we living up to our to our original promise? That is life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness for all of our citizens, as long as they don't prevent other people from enjoying the same rights. Are we doing that? No, we're not doing that with drugs. All the rest of these arguments are distractions in my mind. You know, um, and this is where people like to go down in the weeds and they like to keep us in the weeds and not focusing on this thing that we say that makes us American. We say we're the freest country in the world. We say that we're patriotic. If you're patriotic, then you're fighting for other people's rights. You're fighting for your rights. That's, that's where, that's where I tried to keep the argument in the book. I don't I don't want to be in the weeds. I mean, because we can figure out how to do this. We figured out how to put a man on the moon. We, we can figure this out. I mean, we just had, for example, I just got vaccinated today, you know, and, and we had to figure that out pretty quickly. And we do. We figure it out or we or we it's it's not not it's not that big of a deal for us to figure out. But we pretend that it is. And it's not. Right. The same people who in other areas would say, inform me of the risks and then let me make my own adult decision no longer feel like they can handle that same responsibility when it comes to drugs. You also touched on the the issue of the collateral damage that comes from making drugs illegal. And I'd never really thought about that. If, and I think everybody who has any experience with drugs and youth culture and going to parties and going to festivals can think about this. Imagine scales in your mind between the people who are dying or coming close to dying because they're using drugs, quote unquote, properly. And then think, now I'm a parent uh, and, and you're a parent as well. Think about the people who get into issues because they don't know what they're taking. They don't know it's four times as strong as what they thought it was. The whole fentanyl scare of, you know, the the middle class people who one time you had a, a dental procedure and you found out that you kind of liked hydrocodone. So now, you know, a guy who sells you pills and then mom and dad on a Saturday night, pop a bottle of wine, think they're taking a hydrocodone. It's got too much fentanyl. You know, I know that these are scare tactics that get blown out of proportion in the media, but these are real risks. There are risks 
to keeping drugs illegal that we don't want to reckon with. We actually instead use them as arguments for keeping drugs illegal because illegal drugs are so dangerous. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I got disinvited to um, a university, University of Central Florida, because I wrote an op-ed in the Washington, Par in the Washington Post, and I said that I would much rather have my kids, my teenage kids, my young adults' kids, I'd much rather them interact with drugs than the police. Because with the police, um, those interactions are unpredictable. Uh, too often, the young black person or the black person can end up being dead. Whereas drug effects are predictable. I can keep my kids safe. I know that you increase the dose, you're more likely to get non-specific non effects and so forth. So I know how to keep my kids safe with drugs. I don't know how to keep them safe with the police. Anyway, so I got disinvited for making a statement that's, that's true, uh, but it goes to show whose perspective matters in this society. They don't give a fuck about my kids. And so when I think about uh, drugs uh, and what we think, what we've been saying about drugs, I know it, it's not. It wasn't designed for me, but uh, I'm an expert now and I'm, I'm trying to make it more uh, egalitarian. I'm trying to make this thing more, uh, more available and more accessible and more applicable to a broader range of people in our society. And so, and so I have uh, opponents uh, from all, uh, coming from everywhere because of this sort of uh, thinking. But, you know, uh, I know it's right. And so I don't really care what people think or say um, uh, when they have a critique that makes it better. Great. But they have a, a, if they just have a critique that's not uh, as egalitarian, um, uh, miss me with that. Go somewhere else because I don't have the time. I'm 54 years old. I mean, I paid my dues, my debt to this society. I served in the military and all the rest of these things. So I, I don't really want to hear from people who, ain't, who are not genuine in, in these kind of discussions. Well, we have fallen into a really, really bad national habit in the way that we talk to each other, where if you don't agree with somebody, they're not allowed to even state their opinion. I'll say it again, regardless of whether or not people agree with the conclusions that you've come to they're perfectly valid opinions and they're they're and they're deeply informed opinions on top of that but even if they weren't you you're perfect it's, it it shouldn't have been as shocking to me when 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 I saw your book I was like oh my god I must have I must have reached out to you on Twitter within 3 minutes of hearing of your book because it was like a splash of cold water to my face that somebody would argue for this and then the repercussions of talking to you as I start oh I hope he writes back to me I really want to ask him this I really want to ask him that I start thinking why is it so crazy to me why is it going to seem so crazy to other people that this book exists when what you're advocating for you're probably right and even if you're not it's so far from a crazy suggestion it's just crazy in the world in which we find ourselves the point in time in society in which we find ourselves but you've touched a couple times on the race issue of this and and it's a massive massive part of it in this issue as in so many other things in our in our country you're talking about two Americas. Now, as like a somewhat comfortable middle-class white person, I look at this, I tend to think, well, do I want, it's almost like um, in principle, do I think drugs 
should be legal or am I more concerned I might get addicted, my kids might get addicted or some addicts might break into my house and rob me? That's the question that I ask myself and probably most people who are listening to this, that's the way that they frame the issue. What you have brought to my attention in a really stark way is Okay, I'm opposed to the death penalty, and the reason why I'm opposed to the death penalty is strictly because, as I understand it, it gets so unfairly enforced. Poor people get put to death for murder. There's a story that's all over the uh, the headlines today about some kid in Los Angeles that got his uh, Lamborghini from his dad, who was 17, and hit some poor lady, and I think there was finally enough of an outcry that the kid got arrested. He might go in some sort of program for a couple of months. It's two Americas, and if we're not going to enforce the death penalty equally, then I don't want it at all. I might actually be in favor of it, but I I'm, I can't be if we're not going to enforce it correctly. That's the same issue that you point out with drugs. I stand very little risk of doing hard time if I decide to do cocaine habitually. That is not the same calculus that a poor white person, because I don't want to make it just about race, that a poor white person or non-white people across the socioeconomic spectrum. That's not the same calculus they have to do, and that's not fair. You hit it on the head, man, uh, because you think about places like Oklahoma, too, and Oklahoma, they are arresting a lot of poor white people when it comes to drugs. Uh, they, uh, they go at it. Um, so you're right. It's really, when it comes to our jail, it's really our poor, the poor people in our society. They're catching hell. Um, but it's, it's not only jail, it's uh, the psychological damage that happens as a result of being paranoid about being engaged in this activity. Uh, there are all kinds of negative consequences. It's not knowing what product that your kid is taking or that you're taking. Um, it's uh, introducing your kids uh, to the black market, uh, to this other sort of activity that you, they just simply want to have a good time. They, they want to, they want to get high, not die, you know, and, and, but if you are, you're pushing them in the shadows and then people who, get addicted, they're also in the shadows. And then it's, um, uh, then we vilify them simply because they are using heroin or methamphetamine or some other drug as, the po- as opposed to like understanding what, what's going on. Um, um, that's not necessarily the, the main uh, behavior that you should be focused on, but that's what has happened. Our prohibitionist uh, approach has narrowed our focus such that we can only see the drug taking behavior as bad as the only thing that we think that's relevant when in fact it's not relevant. Um, and so, um, and then when I think about the larger principles, it's inconsistent with who we say we are and nobody seems to care. That's the thing that just fucking it blows my mind having served in the military and then seeing these people on TV with their flags, it's like that's not being that's not being patriotic. Being patriotic, it's fighting for other people's rights. That's patriotism. And so people, it's become war. Uh, well, one of the things that I discovered is that damn near no adult in this society has read the Declaration of Independence after the age of 12 or 14 when it really doesn't matter to you, when you really don't understand the importance of these principles that are being espoused. 
And so if more adults will read the Declaration of Independence, then they would see how the country is not living up to the country's ideals. I mean, we can always look back at the civil rights movement and, or at the LBGT communities movement. We can look at these movements and pat ourselves on the back and say that, oh, I supported Dr. King or I supported, I, was, uh, I, I thought Stonewall was abhorrent. You know, you, you, they say these kind of things. It's like, you have a stone wall right here. You have a civil rights violation right here. Um, and people don't, don't look at it because they don't know what's in the declaration. And that, that really, it annoys me when, when I'm talking to adults and they're pretending that they know what time it is in this country. They, they pretend, they're pretending that they know what these what um, it means to be an American uh, based on the original promise. As you can see, uh, I feel strongly about this. Well, you, you want to, you know, like I don't want to throw stones at people that I don't know that live 12 states away from me that I haven't really interacted with, but it's so often it seems that, and of course there's plenty of people I don't see eye to eye with it much closer to home. That goes without saying. It's, it's akin to the Bible it's the fact the fact that it's unreadable almost makes it more valuable because and by the way I'm not comparing the Bible to Mein Kampf but I've heard the same thing about Mein Kampf because just knowing that there's this big thick book that you can get leather bound and you can stick on your shelf and you can say I'm pretty sure that thing justifies whatever the heck I'm doing right now the value of the thing almost is in the fact that nobody's really holding anybody to the the the, the literal words and the meaning uh, that the, the people who wrote them intended. Now, I want to ask you about a couple of drugs in particular because you've just you have you're so well acquainted with them and you you have so much experience on a scientific level with them. First of all, the the concept of gateway drugs, I experienced that to be nonsense. I as a child again I grew up in suburban New Jersey and Nancy Reagan was a guest star, I think on different strokes and I was scared straight and we had the dare program and I, my palms must've been sweating so much the first time I ever took a drag of a joint because I was legitimately concerned that I was going to end up destitute and on the street. Now in my experience, there's no such thing as gateway drugs. Alcohol and marijuana are just the two drugs that people get their hands on first, right? Like I, I, I was always going to try everything. Those were just the first two I was able to get. You hit it on the head and uh, the anxiety that you described uh, based on what you were told, uh, the amount of damage that does and uh, pain and anguish that causes people uh, just simply from experiencing expected effects of a drug like marijuana. Um, you, you, you can imagine how paranoid or anxious someone may get. Uh, thinking about what Nancy Reagan had said or thinking about what someone else had said when they were exaggerating the effects of these drugs. Uh, and we never talk about that. We never talk about those people who went over the top and they had to go to the ER because of the anxiety that they, they were feeling. Um, I don't know if you've uh, seen a Saturday Night Live skit uh, from the 1970s. Um, Jimmy Carter was president. And Jimmy Carter is known for being like an intellectual. And so they would have this call-in show. Dan Aykroyd would play Jimmy Carter. And people would call in with questions ranging from how to operate some heavy equipment to uh, how, do you, how do you deal with uh, some bad drug effect? 
And Jimmy Carter, would they call in and say that they're having a bad trip? And, and then he talked them down and say, it's going to be OK, you know, put on a little Amen Brothers, which was his favorite group and uh, just chill out and you're going to be fine. That skit is, is uh, some of the few or the limited edu real education that we give in the public about drugs that's actually helpful. I mean, like that skit, it, 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 it was the main thing is when you're having these negative effects from something like marijuana, particularly with inexperienced users, the thing to remember is that the drug will float away from the receptor and it will stop acting eventually and you will come back to normal. And so you want people to have that in their mind and that would alleviate so much anxiety. But we don't tell people that. Instead, we tell them these stories about them not returning and that they are going to become schizophrenic, uh, some, some other nonsense um, that in it, knowing this in, in, in and of itself causes people anxiety. And so um, uh, you, 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 you identified a very important uh, aspect that, uh, uh, that we're getting wrong. Does marijuana cause any long-term changes to your brain? I, I could swear, I was so sure that it was true that it killed brain cells that sometimes I thought when I was going to bed at night when I still, I don't smoke marijuana anymore, that I could actually hear the little things popping like little Rice Krispies in my brain. I don't know what that was, but it, it does, now people are smoking, okay. Yes, marijuana is much stronger than it used to be. You make the good point. Nobody's afraid of vodka just because it's stronger than beer. But I do know people who are drinking the vodka like they used to drink the beer when it comes to marijuana all day, every day. Is there any amount of marijuana use that will cause permanent negative effects to your brain? Um, you know, I haven't uh, I haven't seen it in the literature like uh, some amount that would cause this to happen. But I can tell you this, um, the people who take too much of a drug, any drug, uh, like some wild, outrageous amount, they may not be around to tell us about it. Most people, the vast majority of people wouldn't do that. That's stupid. I mean, that's just, that's not very smart. Now, as people become tolerant to certain drugs and they get more of an extensive history, Tolerance is protective of these, some of these negative effects. And so folks who have a, a, a marijuana use and an extensive marijuana use history, are, uh, they are more protected from some of these negative effects. The same is true with methamphetamine. The same is true with these other drugs. And so tolerance is critically important. And people who are inexperienced users, you should not be taking the same doses as folks who are experienced, folks who are champion users. You aren't, if you're not at that level, uh, that's not very smart. I mean, think about uh, when we give children uh, doses of medication for asthma, for something else, um, the dose is titrated such that it's appropriate for their age, weight, and that sort of stuff. The same is true with um, any other any of these other drugs we're talking about. They're all just chemicals that interact with the central nervous system. And so um, one should be cognizant of the dose. Dose is critically important, as I try to lay out in the book. I'm comfortable with the idea that adults can regulate their use of ecstasy 
marijuana, even cocaine. I'm personally a little bit less comfortable with the idea that people can be trusted when it comes to addiction with with crystal meth and with opiates, with with heroin. I'm, I'm curious now, I know you were honored to be um, insulted with a political caricature in the Philippines because what you went there and said was so opposed to what their uh, president, is it Duterte? I've read it so many times, I don't even know how to say it. Okay, so for people who don't know, he enjoys a lot of popular support because he cut through the bullshit and has vigilantes going around in vans taking drug users and dealers off the street and if he just so happens to take off some people who are political opponents of his as well well collateral damage war is hell but here's the thing i don't know what his current approval ratings are in the philippines but i know at least at one point he was very very popular why is it that the people who were most affected by crystal meth in the poor areas of the Philippines thought that removing crystal meth from the streets by any means necessary might be an appropriate response. To me, that suggests that they, as a people, believe that crystal meth is out of control, addiction is out of control, they cannot self-regulate their use of it as a society. Uh, Well, I mean, the same thing happens in this society. I mean, we think about crack cocaine in the black community. We can think about methamphetamine in the LBGT community. The same thing happens here. Uh, And the people in those communities are, um, well, at some level, you know, they are uh, marginalized in, in some respects, and they want to show the broader society that, hey, we're just as good as you. We have the same values as you. And so there's some of that going on, too. So um, and they also uh, are just as susceptible to being misled as anybody else in a society. And so that's it's, it's not that strange or um, or anything like that. But let's go back to this issue. Um, uh, you, you are not as comfortable with people with heroin or methamphetamine regulating their use. Well, whether you're comfortable with it or not uh, doesn't really matter. What, what, what matters is that people do regulate their use of those substances. When we think about methamphetamine, methamphetamine is the same drug as the active ingredient in Adderall. People regulate their use of that. Um, but uh, heroin is the same drug as morphine. There's just an acetyl group, but they're the same drug. But when you add in all of these things associated with methamphetamine or heroin, for example, in the United States, heroin's potency has varied widely, you know, from as little as 5% in what you think you have as heroin to as much as, I don't know, 70, 80%, if you're lucky. Uh, And so when you have that kind of varied uh, potency, um, um, people tend, I mean, the serious users, the committed users, they tend to inject um, um, because they don't want to lose any of their substance. If you take it by snorting or orally, you can lose some of the substance. And it's like, you don't want to, you, you want to get the biggest bang for your, mu- your buck in, in many cases. And so that plays a huge role in how people are taking the substance. So if you had pharmaceutical grade heroin, People could now uh, regulate their use, spread it out over time, not worrying about this good product is going to be gone and they're not going to be able to get it anymore. Anxiety, that kind of anxiety that comes from that, you can imagine. Similarly with methamphetamine, you're in this sort of um, 
underground economy, uh, not knowing uh, when you're going to get the substance, the varied uh, potency, uh, all of these sorts of things make that activity more dangerous. But the drug themselves does not. It's all of this other stuff. Uh, route of administration, where are you getting the drug from, being in the shadows, um, and also being trying to hide this activity from folks. And, uh, and you do it when you, can, you finally have this, this opportunity to do it. And it might be risky or dangerous because you only have a certain amount of time. As you know, in the book, I was pointing out, you should set aside enough time to engage in this activity. And just like you would if you go into the movies or some show, you have to set aside time to engage in that activity. Otherwise, uh, it will, you'll be stressed out. And when you're stressed out, you can make mistakes. You can get in trouble. You can hurt yourself. All of those. But it has less to do with the drug itself. But in our society, we like to keep the focus on the drug because if we keep the focus on the drug, then we don't have to really talk about the real issues. I want to ask you about how we move forward from this, how we would um, go about making a reality of the sorts of policies that you would like to see. But first, one more quick question about opioid stuff. What do you think about Kratom? I came on my radar somewhat recently, and I just, I love it. And here's the thing, I... I don't drink very often, but when I do, I, I like doing the two together. I know that you're not a big fan of combining alcohol and opioids, and I, and I understand that. That is what I'm doing. I often feel like I need to cut it out or take breaks or whatever, and it's funny. I've never thought, well, I really need to take a break from alcohol to make sure that I'm not getting addicted to it because I trust my inner guide as to whether or not I'm developing an issue, and I'm not. I sometimes drink more than I should, you know, and I and I and that's, that's one of my failings as a person, but it's okay. I've learned to live with it. I, I am me. I feel the exact same way about the Kratom, but a part of me, a nagging part of me is telling me I need to fear it even though that's not there's no, none of my spidey senses are telling me that I feel like it's this received wisdom that I need to be afraid of that. In your opinion, can I safely take it on weekends as long as I'm doing all the responsible things that you promote? In my opinion, yes, of course. Uh, Kratom, uh, I think Kratom is uh, an excellent alternative. Uh, we take it orally. Um, that also helps in terms of onset of effects in terms of ensuring that you probably won't get some huge amount of dose. And well, I have been unable to even uh, achieve uh, uh, like the really intense effects at the large doses. Yeah, it's an opioid and um, it's not, uh, I mean, it's, it just has opioid effects just like heroin, but you just can't, um, the maximum sort of effects is just harder to achieve. I mean, I haven't been able to do it. So, I, but I, I think it's a nice substance that can be taken orally. Substances that can be taken orally uh, tend to be, people tend to uh, be more protected. Um, uh, THC uh, is kind of a caveat because it, the effects take so long to come on and then people get impatient. They put more and more in their gut and then they can't control the effects. So P THC is slightly different. But the rest of these substances, um, when you take them orally, uh, it seems to enhance some of the safetyness. Uh, and so I think Kratom is, a, is, a, is an, an outstanding alternative. It's legal in most states. Um, yeah, I didn't talk about it because I didn't want, you know, I didn't want some hysteria about Kratom. Uh, I didn't want uh, people to get 
crazy about it and ban it because the, the DEA has been trying to ban it forever. Uh, and um, as you, you know, people are not having problems with Kratom and, and it's a nice alternative to alcohol even. Um, it's a, you drink it in this social sort of setting if you want. Uh, you can put it in teas and smoothies and all the rest of these things. And, and you don't even know, you know, that it's uh, there in many cases uh, when you get good at mixing uh, these different recipes. You mentioned in the book that the, the opioid crisis has presented a sort of opportunity because the when when drug addiction is something that we associate with the other then it becomes it's a boogeyman and we can demonize but the opioid crisis has brought the issues associated with drug addiction home for many levels of of white america how confident are you that anything could or will change anytime soon in America? Has anything changed in mainstream America's opinion that you see that is a real opportunity for us to evolve in our attitudes towards drugs? I'm watching Oregon. They decriminalized everything. Um, and, you know, uh, the people will see that their society won't fall apart. Uh, Oregon will be fine. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what other states do uh, in response. Uh, but this all together with uh, the marijuana liberalizing laws, where now, now we have 15 states that have legalized marijuana for adult use. Uh, it's a very it's it's interesting. Uh, but if you check out the states that have legalized marijuana, all of them, uh, except uh, New Jersey and Michigan, uh, Illinois, a little, I think, uh, they have black populations that are below the national average. Um, and so these are largely uh, or heavily white states that have legalized marijuana. Um, and I think that's something to keep an eye on because police, law enforcement really uh, need to have uh, this issue of marijuana or the smell of marijuana as probable cause to mess with people. And so and, and to keep us uh, black folks and folks who are undesired under control, because if you if you smell marijuana, many of them, they've been they've been able to use that as probable cause to fuck with you for anything. And so. Um, it's been interesting to me that there has been no discussion, really, near no serious discussion of having even legal marijuana in the South, where we have heavily black populated states, relatively speaking. Uh, and so when I think of Oregon, what Oregon did, Oregon is, again, really white. It's a really white state. Um, and so that allowed them to be able to do that kind of thing. But to be clear, just because, you know, you have a heavily white state doesn't mean that you're going to have progressive drug policy. Because, I mean, we can think about Maine and Vermont. They are more progressive. They're not arresting people for drugs and that sort of thing. But then you go to places like Wyoming. They are not being progressive on this, this kind of thing. So poor white people will still catch hell in those kind of places. So, um, so it's a very... Uh, in, in the United States, we have a 
we have a really screwed up uh, perspective about uh, fairness and justice, and we conveniently overlook uh, certain populations, and it's allowed to happen with no one really challenging you. And so, um, yeah, that's why it's so important, I think, to keep the focus on the original promise, life, liberty, and the pursuit for all, as long as they don't prevent other people from doing the same. If we keep the focus there, that's what people are guaranteed. If we keep the focus there, then we take care of everyone. Well, you, you're you a college professor. You interact with a lot more young and intelligent people than than I do. I, I feel like the youth will always kind of, I hate to say it, but kind of let you down. I think at any given time, if you were an older progressive person, you could look at the youth, at least in the last 50 years ago, and say, the kids today get it. They're going to be the agent of change. It's too late for my generation. But, I mean, the hippies grew up and how much has really has really changed that having been said i'm ready to open my heart again and believe that the people who are under 30 in america really see things as they are and are really able to communicate the things that they understand to one another so much more effectively than we ever were when we were young because they can you know they can talk on the internet the whole youth of america and the youth of the world are connected to one another in your interactions with the youth of America, does it give you any faith that maybe not in our lifetime, so to speak, but that real change can actually happen here? Uh, yeah, I think the youth of the day are, are so much better than the youth were when in my day. Yeah. Um, I went to college, um, the more of my college years were doing Reagan Bush, and um, there was no real activism, uh, certainly not like the youth of the day. I mean, just think back to this past summer, the, the summer of George Floyd. Uh, young people were out there. They were pushing us, even uh, when Mike Brown, when his murder happened, uh, Trayvon Martin, young folks were, it was the young people who were out there pushing and they're pushing our society, although people criticize them, you know, being like too woke or whatever. And they're going to make their mistakes. Um, and that's and that's part of it. And I'm, 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 I'm glad they are. I mean, we make our mistakes continuously. Um, and so I have a lot more faith in these young people today than any other time in our history. Um, I know people talk about the 60s and the hippies and so forth. You know, they had Vietnam hanging over their heads. So they were highly motivated to make sure that something happened that they didn't want to be in Vietnam. You know, that was a that that's they had skin, real skin in the game. So the more people having skin in the game, that's where you get the activism. Um, and so I think these young people uh, today, though, see our hypocrisy even better than those folks in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so I hope. Man, I hope they keep the energy, and I, you know, I just want to be able to uh, be a resource if, 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 if I'm able, if, if they think that I am, and and I just want to encourage them, and I want to get out of the way as well uh, because it's their day and their their time. I hope one day that um, I'm able to share your book with my son when he's an adult and say, well, at the time this was, you have to understand, this was actually a very radical thing <laughs> that this guy was was saying. And you've given me a little bit of hope that perhaps that we can get there. I don't I don't know where we're supposed to be. I don't know if you and I come down in the exact same place, but where where we are is 
everybody knows it's not work. It's not working. So let's we got to shake it up. Um, I encourage everybody to to check it out, and I congratulate you for writing it and for sharing your own personal experiences. It does. If you have some skin in the game because of the way that you have addressed this issue, the book is called Drug Use for Grownups Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Dr. Carl L. Hart. Uh, thank you for having me, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Take care, bro.